All right, church, here we go. If you have a copy of God's Word, we are going to look at the first word in the book of Exodus today. And we won't go that slow the whole time, but that's as far as we're going to get this morning. I'm really being serious with you because, you know, I'm not trying to compete with the testimony that you guys heard today from up there. I think that is as powerful a message of the gospel as anything that I could bring to you from God's Word. And so I have a few things I want to explain to you to sort of get us ready to dive into the book of Exodus at a deep level beginning next week. Um, but you know, if you've ever followed like an online recipe, how they just assume by the time you get to the recipe itself that you have like 55 different ingredients already at your house, and you're like, all I wanted to do was just make pancakes. Do I really need like bird feathers and all this other? So what we're going to do today is the preparatory stage. We're going to go through the cabinets a little bit and make sure that we have everything ready to measure out so that when we get into uh, the life of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, we'll be, we'll be able to hang with the pace at which they move. I also want to mention to you, hopefully you saw today at both main entrances to this room, that we have uh, Exodus Scripture journals. Those are available to you. That's a gift to you. We'll have those available as long as we have any. So please take one if you want. Um, Our hope in getting those for you is as we preach through books of the Bible, hopefully slowly over time across many years, you'll build a library, a catalog of books of the Bible that you've read all the way through, that you've worked all the way through with notes and milestones, and that that will continue to grow your ability to navigate God's Word on your own. So we have some here on a table. There's also some in uh, the lobby behind the double doors. And like I said, if we run out, we'll have more. We have, I think, 150 or so uh, around. So um, we're going to be walking through the book of Exodus, this series. And Exodus has 40 chapters. And you're thinking to yourself, if we're only going to do one word today, are we going to do Exodus until 2055? I don't think so. I'm not planning on that, though I will say we're going to give the text the time that it needs for us to really understand it. I'm not interested in rushing through this. And so in the interest of helping you hang on to what's happening in the book of Exodus, we're going to break the book into four pieces, into four parts, and we're going to kind of treat each of those parts like its own separate sermon series. And the first part is the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. This is the part one is what I'm calling You Can Run. And you'll see why, beginning next week as we get into the message of those chapters, it's really the origin story of Moses. Moses is the central figure in this book. He will be the person who we hear about the most, who we hear from the most, and it's important to understand where he comes from before he marches into Egypt and begins the Charlton Heston film that you've probably all seen, where he stands before the Pharaoh and plagues come, and then there's the Ten Commandments. There's a lot more to this story than just those high points. And so we're going to take our time getting through those first four chapters, but for the sake of your understanding, I think probably for maybe a month and a half, we're going to be in the first part of this four-part journey through the book of Exodus. The reason that I want to talk about the very first word in Exodus is because probably in your English Bible, the first Hebrew word in Exodus is omitted. It's gone. You would never know that. Uh, In seminary, I was told that reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament in English is like somebody else kissing your wife and telling you about it. So there's a depth of understanding that you're just, I know, it's gross. There's a level of understanding that you're not going to get because you can't put your lips right on Moses to take that analogy to its extreme, I guess. So we're going to have to read about what he's done, what he's seen, and what he's experienced, and we have to have it translated across Roughly 6,000 years of world history from a dead language that nobody can speak that's written from right to left that also has no vowels. I don't know if you knew that. When you read written Hebrew, there's just no vowels. It's just all the consonant sounds, and then you have to know what the right vowels are to put in. So it can be challenging. In Hebrew, the opening words of the book of Exodus reads like this, if I were to translate it roughly, literally. It says, 
And these are the names of the sons of Israel who are coming into Egypt with Jacob, a man and his household have they come. If you're using one of the ESV scripture journals that we have, yours opens by just saying these. Or if you're a King James person, it probably says now these. Why is that important? Because the and at the beginning of Exodus communicates that this is part of a story that started previously. This is the next train car in the train of God communicating his story. And what it's supposed to tell you and I is that there's a lot of background here that it assumes that we already know. If you and I had grown up within two or three hundred years of Moses having died, when these were still uh, brand new written histories, because Moses is the one who put pen to paper on these first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, Uh, you would have heard this story told straight through. Like imagine at bedtime, your dad or your mom sitting with you and the other kids and telling you a story every night before you fall asleep. Probably those stories in your home, in your encampment, if you're a young Israelite boy or girl, are these creation stories and the stories of Noah and the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel, the things that are written into your Bible now. There would have been no formal break between the end of the book of Genesis when Joseph brings his father and his father's family into Egypt, and what we just looked at, where we pick back up with those people having already lived in the land of Egypt. So if we're going to have a good grasp of what's going on in the book of Exodus, if we're specifically going to have all of our ingredients on the counter, measured out, ready to cook whatever it is that we think we're going to cook following this recipe, then we need to understand the book of Genesis. And beginning next week, we're going to work through the first seven verses of the book of Exodus. Those mirror a little bit of what's happening in the book of Genesis as well. But this morning, my task for you is to try to get through the first 22 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we're going to do it. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to look through the filter through the lens of God's covenants. Last week, we finished our series on the new vision of this church. And the operative text that we looked at was Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. We used that as a lens because we feel that it does two things. One, it explains to us what God is doing in the world, and two, it keeps our eyes on Jesus. It helps us understand that whatever God is doing, wherever God is moving, he really only has one goal, and that's to unite all things in Christ. It's to reconcile the world to himself. It's what he's always been doing. It's what he will always be doing until time ends. So though you might expect that we need to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to get an idea of what's happening in the Old Testament, I actually think the best place to start is the same verses that we read last week. Because at True North Church, we believe that it's all about Jesus, and that means that even the Old Testament is actually all about Jesus. That will be part of my task every week as we walk through the book of Exodus is to help you understand that, yes, Exodus is the historical account of a nation of people oppressed in slavery, God's miracles, and how he carried them out of that land, but it's also the story of God redeeming and reconciling the human race. It's a very early chapter in that story, but it is the same message that God has had for the earth from the time that sin entered into the world. So if you would, turn your attention to the screen, and I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And I've emphasized a couple of pieces that we're going to talk about for a second. Paul is writing to the brand new church in Ephesus. He's trying to kind of hand them the decoder ring in their cereal box of what God is doing in the world. And he says this. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. Grace that he lavished upon us in all wisdom and in all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
So looking at the phrases that I've emphasized on the screen, you can see that through Jesus, God is explaining what he has been doing in history, that he has been executing a plan to unite everything in Jesus. And that tells us that God's mission on the earth is reconciliation. That is what God is doing. This is the first big idea that we're going to see traced through the first 22 chapters of the book of Genesis, and it will remain a theme for us all the way through the book of Exodus. God does not have to scramble. He's not worried when his people become oppressed or enslaved. In fact, we'll read today that he actually foretold that a long time before it happened, but his people forgot. Go figure, right? We're not like that, are we? Modern Christians, we never forget the promises that God makes. No, people are always the same. So what I want you to do is I want you to catch that idea, and then we're going to just look quickly at three covenants that God gave in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to show you how each of those covenants expands upon and further reveals that mission. God's going to clarify and build out that mission, and he continues to do so. These are not the only three covenants in your Bible, but they're the first three that happened before Exodus, and they are the theological and spiritual context into which the Exodus story is told. So the first covenant begins by explaining to us that God has some kind of plan to fix what has gone wrong. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, God is addressing the sin of the first man and woman. He's responding to their rebellion, and he's handing down a curse. Now, a key player in that story is the serpent. It's the devil in physical form as what we would think of as a snake. And so what we're going to read is God communicating the curse, the response he has to the sin in the serpent, but he's going to make an allusion to his first promise to the human race. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have misled man and woman and introduced selfishness into their lives, you are cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And so on your belly you will go, and you'll eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, or you could think of that as strife or pain or friction, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, so part one, she will have offspring. That offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first glimpse of light at the end of the tunnel. God is communicating that a day is coming in which this serpent, who has had way more authority than he should have and has been able to influence the people of God to turn their backs on him and be selfish, that his time is running out. It may take thousands and thousands of years, but there is a finish line for him, at which point some descendant of the woman, Eve, will smash his head into the ground permanently. So this is the first covenant that God makes with the human race, as he communicates that he will correct what is wrong. And it's important, I think, for you to see that his response to sin, yes, is a curse. Things are going to get harder. There's going to be death in your lives now, and there wasn't before. But that's short-term. That's temporary in God's perspective, and that will come to an end eventually. God's mission is reconciliation, and Covenant 1 in our Bibles tells us, God says, I will reconcile what has been undone by sin. I'm going to fix this. God takes responsibility for that. That's the first covenant that he rolls out. Now, after introducing death as a penalty for sin, the first man and first woman sin, God gives them this curse, they begin to procreate, to spread humanity across the face of the planet. You probably know the story of their first two sons, Cain and Abel, and how Cain killed Abel and why that was not good. But their third son, Seth, is the one through which the family tree will continue. He's the one where we can trace the genealogy actually all the way to Jesus if you care to take the time and do the math. But the point is, is that several generations later, People have gotten a little bit uh, too big again. They've become large enough, they've spread across the face of the planet enough that God feels that their sin is becoming a major problem. It's epidemic level, and he has to address it. Now, he's already communicated that his plan is to reconcile what's been undone by sin, right? He's going to fix this somehow. 
Reconciliation does not always mean that there's a positive solution. To reconcile a debt simply means that the debt is taken care of. A debt can be paid off financially, and therefore the person with the debt can go free. Or, if that debt is unable to be paid, typically that person pays with their life. This is basically the the foundation of our criminal justice system in the United States, right? You either pay with the time of your life, for the rest of your life, you sit in a cell until you're you're gone, or if it's bad enough, you give your life right now for what you've done. So we understand how this can work. The reason I'm telling you that is when we think of reconciliation in the New Testament, that concept is nested in Jesus, and Jesus takes that penalty of death for you and I. So we don't actually have to experience it. The reconciliation of God on this side of the cross is always good news for us because Jesus willingly takes that penalty. But under the umbrella of covenant one, God can still use death to settle debts. And that's what he does. In Genesis chapter seven, God releases the waters of the heavens and the waters of the deep together and the earth is swallowed in water. A flood comes. He warns a man named Noah and his family to build a boat, probably the first boat ever, He builds it so large that God's able to take a remnant of animals and plants onto that boat and it floats in the water. God preserves them. And then when the waters recede and Noah and his family are the only people left on the planet, God starts over. If you were to read through the full length of the covenant that God makes with Noah, he reiterates all of the commands that he gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden. God is communicating that he is starting all the way over. He's hitting reset on the earth. If you remember the VCR days, he is rewinding the tape all the way back to the beginning and he's going to play it again. And so nestled in this covenant that God gives to Noah is an expansion. It's a a further uh, growth of how God is going to get to reconciliation. He becomes a little bit more specific, but I want to read it to you. It's Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. They've come off the boat and God communicates to Noah. He says, behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah. And with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, all the beasts of the earth, as many as have come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God's mission is still reconciliation. It's still to settle the debts of sin in the world. He has a plan. Paul told us in Ephesians, he's working toward reconciliation But covenant two, God says, I will reconcile now through redemption, not destruction. God tried that. He did it in Genesis 7. He was willing to unleash his wrath in a way that was very tangible, very physical. This, my friends, is one of the answers to the question many people ask when they say, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Well, the reason that everybody who sins against God doesn't get struck down by a lightning bolt as soon as they do it is God tried that one time, and there was nobody who could survive that process, and he would really like to see the human race continue to grow. So he is patient, and he will wait, and he will put the penalty for sin on Jesus for those who believe in the Christ. So God now is saying there will be reconciliation. It's going to have to happen via redemption instead of destruction. And so he puts a bow in the sky. And it's interesting because if you've ever seen a bow, an arrow, the way that the bow is aimed is no longer at earth. It's aimed at heaven. And I think that there's some meaning behind that. I think there's an implication that the penalty for what's wrong will now be handled and received by somebody who's not with us here on the earth, Allah, Jesus. So then in Genesis 12, three chapters later, Noah's offspring continue to grow. They spread across the face of the earth, and there's a man named Abram who grows up in a land called Ur. He's totally obscure. There's no real meaning to his life other than he just farms all day to live. He takes decent care of his family, and he's just sort of going through life. He's like 75, 80 years old, and God just appears. 
He just speaks into Abram's life. The same God who made a covenant with Noah, the same God who created Adam and Eve, he's been relatively quiet for several generations. And he says to Abram, it's time for you to move. And Abram, God bless him, he says, yes. I don't know that I would have taken God at his word if I didn't have a church and pastors and people to bounce that idea off of. But Abram goes and gets his wife and says, hey, we're pretty old, but God's saying we have a next step. So let's pack everything up and let's caravan to the land of Canaan. And so they do. They travel to the land of Canaan. We don't have time to go all the way through Genesis 12, but if you want to read a really wild story in your Bible, read the second half of Genesis 12. Abram and his wife Sarah pass through the land of Egypt, and while they're there, some crazy stuff happens. Just bear in mind, it may not be obvious in the story if you do read it, that she is 65 years old when this story happens. That is a major factor in what happens in that story that I don't have time to tell you about. I've already spent more time explaining it than I should have. Read it. She's 65. Kind of mind-blowing. So in Genesis 15, they arrive in Canaan, Still Abram, still his wife Sarah, and God says to them, I'm going to give you a child. Cool, God gives lots of people children. Why is that that big of a deal? Because at this point in their lives, Abram is 100 years old, and his wife is 90. So they're not going to have a kid. If you don't know a lot about science, that doesn't go that way really at all. And that's what Abram says back to God. He says, I've never been able to have a child. God, I followed you here to Canaan. You gave us this land. And now I'm afraid that when I die, one of my cousins is going to inherit it. And nobody's going to know about you. And I'm not going to have a legacy. And I don't get why you would do this. It feels like you're messing with me. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. And not only will I give you a child, Abram, he takes him out of his tent and says, look at the sky. You see the stars? The descendants of your line will number more than the stars in the sky. Now, the New Testament interprets that story to be both physical and spiritual. So you and I, who have called upon the name of Jesus and repented, we believe that we are, in a sense, descendants of Abraham. Because Abraham is a man who has faith in God. God gives him righteousness in response to that. And Abraham lives, oh, I don't know, 250 years before God even gave the law to his people. So it's not like he followed all the rules because he didn't know any of them. God had not written them on the wall yet for everybody to obey. So faith is what leads to Abraham's righteousness. God keeps the promise physically, Because he does have a son, and his son has children, and that guy has 12 kids, and those 12 kids have a lot of kids, and then 450 years later, about a million and a half people get led out of Egypt, halfway through the book of Exodus. So God does what he says he's going to do. But spiritually, you and I find our place in that story, because we are also descendants of the first man who said, I have faith, I believe God, I can't see it all, I can't connect all the dots, and God said, that's good enough. I will do the work for you. I will do the rest for you, which has always been God's plan. The problem with Adam and Eve is that they wanted to be autonomous. Do you understand that? That was their big sin issue. It wasn't that they slept together. It wasn't that they had children or whatever other churches may have said was the original sin. The sin in their hearts was they were going to be in charge of themselves. And this is why works will never lead to righteousness because it never has. It wasn't Adam and Eve's ability to be obedient that kept them close to God before there was sin. It was their total dependence on him. The weight of their life was leaning on God. And then when they pulled back and started making decisions for themselves and trying to read and react and be responsible, that's what divided them from God. And this has remained the problem. When Abraham hears that promise from God that he's going to have a son, Abraham gets tired of waiting on that process. He and Sarah continue to do what grown-ups do to have a baby, and it doesn't work. And eventually Sarah says, if God promised you this, it's been too long, we're going to die, you need to be with my servant. And she'll have the baby, it's like a surrogate, right? People do that, no big deal. Abraham says, fine, let's knock it out. So they do, she has the baby. The baby grows up to be a little kid. God comes back to Abraham and says, hey, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about my promise, I'm still going to give you a child. And Abraham says, Oh, 
Uh, don't we have that child, God? Is this like a trick? Is this a riddle? And God's like, no, I haven't kept my word to you yet. I'm going to at the right time. And so Abraham and Sarah realize that this other kid is not the kid that God promised. This is their shortcut to get around God's timing so that they can force into existence the things that he's promised to give when he's ready. When the boy is finally born, his name is Isaac. And mm, a few chapters after God communicates with Abram, the covenant that we're about to read, God challenges Abram with the hardest decision of his life. So before we get there, let's read in Genesis chapter 15. This is covenant three that God cuts with Abraham. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, so I didn't explain this to you and I apologize. Abram's name was Abram until God made it Abraham. He did that after the son was born for several reasons that we can't get into today, but it's the same guy, so I apologize for not making that clear. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain, I like how he says that, Quit guessing. Quit trying to figure this out. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. In other words, they'll be long-term guests in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. That's putting it lightly. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Exodus. God told Abraham, I'm going to grow this big nation out of your offspring. I'm going to give you lots of kids, and they're going to have kids, and it's going to be amazing, and people are going to always remember you. You, and they're going to give credit to me because they knew that you were barren and your wife was barren, but they're also going to be in slavery for 400 years. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. If you remember about a month and a half ago, we talked about how God plunders his enemies to build something new, to build his dwelling place out of those riches. That's what he's talking about. God still has a plan of reconciliation. And this covenant, it's a beautiful story in Genesis 15. I would encourage you to read through it if you haven't before. God does some really cool stuff where he allows Abraham to sort of not have the penalty of breaking the covenant, sit on his own head, but God does. God goes through this very human, very cultural ritual with Abraham in which God walks through the body parts of an animal that's been cut up, which is supposed to represent, like, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me, which is just wild that God would ever make a promise like that to a human being. But he's showing Abraham, you can trust me, like, I'll do it. I'll do your little Chaldean pinky promise that you want so that you know that I'm not going to break my word to you. Towards the end of that is where he alludes to this idea, but that covenant, covenant three, tells us that God's mission is reconciliation, and now God has expanded that covenant to say this, I will redeem the descendants of Abraham. I'll do that in the land of Canaan in order to reconcile the world to myself. This is why Jesus has to be Jewish. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you don't understand that as God works and walks with the Old Testament people of Israel through the whole Old Testament, he is preserving them because he promised he would use their family to bring about reconciliation. And he has known all along that it would be Jesus. He's been sure about it. That's what Paul told us in Ephesians 1, right? That God has had a plan that he's going to reveal at the fullness of time, a mystery of his will made known in Christ. Ephesians 1 is also our decoder ring. It's how we're going to be able to even navigate the book of Exodus. There are laws in the book of Exodus that will be incredibly challenging for us to understand. There are moments where God's people do horrible, deplorable things. And God never blesses them. He never says, this is good and right and you should do these things. But we have to figure out how to navigate this story. And what I'm going to tell you every week is that Jesus answers those questions. He reveals to us what is happening. He gives us the meaning and the significance of the events of this book. So last verses that I want to show you, this is seven chapters later, God tells Abraham he needs to kill his son. 
like the boy that God gave. Not the boy from the slave girl. He gets to live. This is the boy that God gave to Abraham. The Bible doesn't tell us how old he is at that point, but it does communicate that he's somewhere between probably six or seven years old and a young man, early 20s. He still lives in his father's house, which today might be frowned upon, but was pretty normal back then. And so he goes with Abraham up a mountain to make what he thinks is a normal blood sacrifice, which is pretty normal in the world that they live in. But then there's a twist. So I want to read this story to you quickly. We're going to skip around just a little bit for the sake of time. But Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham by saying to him, Abraham. And Abraham answered. He said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And there offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. We're going to skip a couple verses and pick it up in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son. He tied him up and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. What is God doing? The reason, church, that I want you to understand these three covenants is when we've read the story in the past, you felt the weight of a father having to kill his son. And that's serious. It's a part of the story. You felt the weight of a man having to trust God who maybe is threatening to take away something very personal that he's given to that man. And that is part of the story. What I want you to see is when Abraham brings that probably stone knife swinging down toward his son's neck to cut his throat like you would a burnt offering, He's not only swinging on his son, he's swinging on these three covenants of God. Through this boy is the only route that God has revealed by which he will eventually reconcile the world to himself. The reason that the Bible slows down, it's been going pretty fast, about 100 years a chapter, it slows down in this chapter to give us this kind of day-by-day account of walking up the mountain and finding the wood and tying him up is because we are supposed to understand God's covenants enough that we feel the gravity of the whole thing coming off the rails. This is the Old Testament's version of Jesus on the cross. It's the moment when the people who have trusted God and followed him see the person by which salvation is supposed to come about to bleed out and die. We're supposed to ask ourselves, understanding this covenant, we're supposed to say, didn't God say that he would reconcile his people? How could killing a child do that? But the mystery of that will of God is revealed in Christ. It's only by God killing his only son that you and I can have salvation and life. Didn't God say he would reconcile through redemption and not destruction anymore? Why would he encourage a man from Ur, a place basically bathed in the blood of human sacrifice, to kill his son according to the requirements of all the pagan religions of his neighbors? We find the answer to that in Jesus. Jesus, who was killed according to Roman law, according to the customs of the people with whom he lived as a criminal, totally innocent of all of the things he was accused of, his blood was spilled. In the case of both Isaac and Jesus, God is appealing to what the people of that day understand. He's painting with colors that people in that culture can see. He's trying to help us connect with the offensiveness of this innocent death that there's a lot more on the line here than just a boy losing his life. It's God's promises that are at stake. We might ask ourselves, didn't God say that his plan was specifically tied to the life of this boy? Isn't this the boy from which the new nation of Israel is supposed to come? 
And I have to believe that as Jesus watched his, or excuse me, as Jesus' disciples watched him hang on his cross and suffocate on that hill outside of Jerusalem, that they asked themselves the same questions. Didn't Jesus say his kingdom was coming through him? Isn't he supposed to be the one to reconcile the world? Didn't he speak about life and freedom, yet here he is hanging in the dark? What about God's purposes? Maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe God isn't who he said he was. And it's that thought, it's that concept where you and I connect with this story. Maybe God's not who he said he was. Have you ever felt that before? Do you feel it like once a month, like sometimes I do? Part of my job is navigating crises with you. Church, I love you, I'm glad to do it. But I hope that you're honest with each other the way that you are with me. I hope that you share with each other the reality that this is the world that we live in. We see a God who seems to have said a bunch of stuff and then maybe isn't backing it up. What do we do with that? That will remain a question as we navigate slavery, oppression, infanticide, plagues, betrayal, all through the book of Exodus. The reason that's the story of the book of Exodus is it's our story. We too are hard-hearted, we're broken people, we don't have what it takes to fix ourselves and we cannot bring something of value to God without him first calling us. And so we find the answer in Jesus. To read the rest of the story to you in verse 11, the Bible tells us this in Genesis 22. That God provides by an angel, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, I mean the knife's coming down and Abraham stops and he says yes. The angel says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I I know, now I have seen that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. At the last minute, God reconciles both Abraham and Isaac to himself by redeeming them through provision of his own sacrifice. He keeps the very covenant that he made to Abraham seven chapters earlier. And though we see shadows of Jesus in the way that Abraham almost sacrificed sacrificed his son Isaac, it's actually the ram who tells the story of the Christ to us. The ram who is caught, the ram who is innocent, the ram who has very little to do with the sin of these men, but is offered as a sacrifice in their place so that their blood does not have to be spilled. That ram is the answer, Jesus himself is the answer to how God can create new life out of death. He provides the sacrifice. God gives grace freely, but it's paid for grace. It is still reconciled. The debts are still balanced by Jesus. It's the gospel that God supplies what God demands. And so through Jesus, death paves the way for life. He is how defeat and surrender can create life and purpose and hope. And we agree with Paul, don't we, that all things can find their place in him. That's our story. That's the story of the first of the patriarchs, Abraham. It'll be the story of his son Isaac. It's the story of his son Jacob, Jacob's son Joseph. Joseph moves God's people to Egypt. They're riding high, and then a few generations later, they're all enslaved, and we're going to find out why. Has God abandoned them? Has God forgotten his covenants with them? Is God stepping back and taking his hands off the wheel and letting them suffer a little bit because they've been bad? These are things that we think about God. No, God is in control. God is using these things. God will keep his covenant promises. It's the story of Exodus. It's also our story. It's the story of we who find ourselves oppressed today. We find ourselves enslaved to sin. We find ourselves stuck in patterns that we cannot break. We who want to be near God but cannot seem to get there. 
on our own. We've tried everything. We who need to be delivered and who need to be rescued, especially from ourselves. And even for we who maybe cannot believe that there even is a God. Maybe we've lived enough life to feel that there's just more evidence against than for at this point. This is the right story. This is the right message for you. Because it is the story of God reconciling us to himself. So, I love you, church. That's as far as we're going to go today. Like I told you next week, we're going to work through the first seven verses of the book of Exodus. I'm so excited to walk through this book with you. Let me pray for you. Father, we bring you our skepticism. We bring you all the parts of Christianity that seem so implausible to us, so unlikely, so hard to grab onto, God. I pray this morning that as we've heard testimony of you transforming us and then seeing clearly in your word that you are who you've always been, a God who redeems and reconciles, that you would communicate to us hope, that there is a way out. Whatever is haunting us, whatever is hanging over our heads, whatever it is about our relationships or our life or our finances or our sin that we feel that we cannot outrun, God, give us the mercy to admit that that's true, that we can't outrun it. And then, God, give us the belief to turn our eyes to you and ask you to save us. That's all we want to be, it's all we've ever wanted to be, is a group of people who've been saved by Jesus. That's it. So God, would you make that alive in us? Would you make it new? Would you remind us the value of that? And would you let us be people who are eager, eager to hear your story, eager to know you better? We love you. We trust you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.